Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D's second season. In November 2006, the Mars Global Surveyor's mission came to an end. Systems engineer Andre Dress was on the team charged with figuring out why. In this two-part interview with Andre Dress, co-moderators Tom and Eleanor learn how mission review teams are formed, the process they go through to figure out the problem, and how to prevent similar future mishaps. We also had some time to discuss some of the exciting new work Andre has been and continues to be engaged in with NASA. And now, part one of Space 3D's interview with Andre Dress. Well, welcome everyone to season two. I'm Tom Hill and Eleonora Rangers is here as well. For today, we've got our first guest of the season and we're switching gears a little bit. Last year was focused a lot on medical things, but we're going to move a little more into the tech area today, which is why I'm leading off here. And our first guest is a man named Andre Dress. He currently works for NASA, but in the past, I worked with him at NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, on weather satellites. Had some adventures there with the GOES spacecraft. We might talk a little bit about that today. But the main reason we have Andre here today is because in space, of course, we want everything to go well, but they don't always go well. And when that happens, appoint a board that will investigate what happened and try to figure out the reason why. And Andre actually served on one of those boards. We'll get a little more into the background in a bit. But how are you doing tonight, Andre? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Tom and Eleanor? Welcome. Thank you. So, Andre, I know you've worked on several spacecraft. Give us a quick summary of, uh, of the spacecraft you've worked on. Now, for our listeners, these are all uncrewed spacecraft, the modern, modern term for it. Uh, but they, they've served a number of functions. Go ahead, Andre. So right out of college, I started working on uh, programs, a longstanding program called Landsat 4 and Landsat 5. And those spacecraft, actually, they lasted pretty long. They went for about 25 years. Um, but, I, but I worked on them for a few years right out of college. And that's where I kind of got my experience in, in operations. Then uh, I went on, and actually at the time, I was working for a company called uh, Ford Aerospace, which uh, does not exist at this time. Part um, of one of many buyouts. Right. <laughs> when it got bought out by Laurel, which corporation, which I think is still around. Uh, so then I went to work on uh, GOES. I went. I switched over to a company called uh, Computer Sciences Corporation, and I uh, was working on the GOES I through M series. And GOES stands for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. It's a, uh, a geosynchronous mission. Um, they they look at the weather. I usually tell people when uh, they ask about that mission, they say, "Hey, turn your TV on at night, and you see the the images that are coming from space. They're coming probably from the GOES mission, right? You know, especially if you're looking back uh, deep. So, especially so, when hurricanes are are in. It's yeah. hurricane season. GOES is on front and center. Right. It's t people typically refer to it as the the hurricane hunter. And the great thing about the GOES mission is, of course, is that it, it has the ability, since it's geosynchronous, it rotates at the same time, at the same rate as the Earth uh, turns. And so it can see the same portion of the Earth at all times. Right. And so you can 
you can monitor and track hurricanes um, very easily from that distance. The, the problem with it, of course, is that it's so far away. And so you have to have very good instruments to actually see all the detail and stuff. So, so there's different advantages to, uh, to different types of uh, missions. So I worked on that and I launched uh, five missions uh, doing operations. And then I went on to work on the, the next series of GOES missions, uh, GOES spacecraft, which was uh, GOES N through P. So there were three of them in that, in that series. And I took the role on in, in the project office as observatory manager. And I was working, actually, in that time period, I had transitioned to NOAA and working for the government at, with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And that's where I, Tom and I met. And so as a, uh, a government employee overseeing the GOES spacecraft, I worked in the Operation Control Center down in Suitland. Um, then I got asked to uh, move to, to NASA. And so I went on and worked on to the next series, as I mentioned, GOES N through P, as, an, as a NASA employee, and saw through the, the launch of uh, those three spacecrafts. So I actually have been the part of eight different launches in my career. Now, the GOES series and most of the NASA series spacecraft, if there's a number of spacecraft, they'll letter the spacecraft while it's on the ground, and then it gets a number once it achieves its, its orbit. That's correct, yes. And that's the number designation doesn't change. The, the letter designation doesn't change. So if it, uh, um, if it doesn't achieve orbit, and I think there was one mission that did not achieve orbit, it was a failure, that letter just got retired and, and, and uh, didn't get used again. But the numbers are always in sequence. Yeah, I think that was GOES-8. Yeah, so. GOES are in orbit at any one time. So right now, the three that I was a part of the launch on, they are still in orbit. Um, and then the next, and so there's, GOES is kind of, there's always this perpetual another series being built, right? So I, you want to always have these spacecraft in orbit. And so GOES-R series, which is the next one, um, they have launched two. So there's actually five in orbit right now. And you really only need two to monitor. Um, but the interesting thing is, is a lot of these satellites, you launch them, and they last for quite quite a long time. So the, the GOES-N, which became GOES-13, got launched in 2006. So it's now 2018, right? So it's 12 years old. You know, the design of the mission was really only for seven years. Fortunately, we put a lot more fuel on board, and so they have the ability to last. Much yeah, longer. the typical operational constellation is one watching the east coast and one watching the west coast, and then there's like a spare in the middle. That's the that's the normal right. stated constellation. Right. You you like to have a spare just in case if there was one that actually failed, which kind of like we're talking about today, then you know you you have one in orbit that you can replace it with. So there, there's currently five up there, but really only two are being used operationally. We can support other countries so, with some of the spares. We've done some interesting things with them. So then from there, I went on to do, so I actually worked on the JPSS mission, which is a, it's a joint polar satellite uh, system. And it's, the JPSS is another weather satellite and it is actually a uh, low earth orbiting a satellite around uh, 800 kilometers or so above the earth's surface. I did that for about a year and a half and then uh, went on to, to the mission I'm on now. Actually, I'm the project manager for the, the PACE mission. PACE mission is an earth science mission uh, looking at ocean color. It's a very interesting mission monitoring the uh, phytoplankton. And the phytoplankton, of course, are very important because they uh, are the base of the food chain. And so 
fish eat phytoplankton, you know, small creatures eat phytoplankton. And, and of course we eat fish and, and as the, uh, the ocean temperature changes, you know, they, they are moving and changing. And of course that's a big interest to us. Uh, they're also a very high producing factor of, uh, um, of oxygen on the planet. So when you, when you think about the phytoplankton, very small plant life, they represent maybe 1% of all the plant life on the earth. But over the years, they've generated 50% of the oxygen on the earth. And so understand, understanding how they, they are changing is, is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. And then one day you got a phone call. Yes. That's how these, that's how <laughs> right, these that things a, work. Yes. Right, right. So go ahead. Uh, do you want so, me to give the background okay. on the mission? And I'll say, we need to call Andre Dress. Let's do that. Sure, go ahead, give the, the background, and then I'll tell you okay. what, what we did. So for long-term space fans, they're aware of the Mars Global Surveyor spacecraft. It was launched in the late 90s and uh, orbited, orbited Mars for a long period of time. My personal belief is that for the dollar per dollar return, Mars Global Surveyor will be one of the best missions NASA ever put together. It was on the order of $200 million, and it just stayed and kept going and going and going. And then in, I believe it was 2006, I was reviewing the notes today. I believe it was 2006. Andre will correct me. Uh, they, they contacted it, and it was having some issues. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we need to get back to this. And they went back to it a couple hours later and heard nothing. The spacecraft was, like, completely dead. And they said, uh-oh. So they have regular procedures that they go through to, to try to get it back. But when they didn't get it, they said, okay, we need to figure out what happened. Let's call Andre Dress. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it quite went that way. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, typically operations teams have the ability to, um, to do an investigation, right? Um, you know, and, and they have the, they should have procedures in place to, in a contingency situation to try to resolve anomalies. So I, I would say that, you know, there are anomalies that occur all the time on spacecraft uh, or the ground system or operational errors or, you know, all types of different anomalies that occur. Um, and the operations team is well equipped to, to handle them. In the case of the, the Mars Global Surveyor, they had all that, um, but it did not recover, right? So they, they lost the spacecraft and of course they continued to try to recover it. And then at some point, you know, it became obvious that chances of getting it back were probably slim as time went on. Uh, you know, you can you can make some certain assumptions of battery life and how long it can last, you know, without power on the solar panels. And and so at, at that point, you know, NASA has the uh, um, ability to call in other members to do what you call a, a mishap board investigation. Right. So something something went wrong um, and then they'll depending on what it is, they'll initiate a mishap board anomaly investigation team that comes in and says, you know, they're typically independent. And take, let's take a, you know, an independent look of what happened and what the real root cause of the problem was. And so I, of course, was just one member on, uh, on this team. You um, want people who are knowledgeable about spacecraft, but not necessarily the spacecraft in question, right? Yeah. So it's nice to, you know, to, to have somebody that's, that's not familiar with it. So they take a fresh perspective, you know, and, and bringing in their, a different experience, uh, to to the mission. Now you you always have to have people on the board also that are familiar with it, so they can explain it. Right? You know, this is what was going on. This this is how the spacecraft works. You know, this is how it was designed. 
This is how the, you know, the operations team uh, typically operates the mission and, and things like that. So you have, in order to really uh, construct what took place and what happened, you have to have uh, that type of insight. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, about how you actually got selected because you're working on, you know, stationary satellites at this point and nothing related to Mars exploration. So how is it that you ended up getting that phone call? I know that you were not, it sounds like part of the reason why you're selected is not being directly related to the project, but how did people end up saying, Andre's our guy to be on this, on this committee? So, all right. So to, to answer, answer your question is, um, you know, obviously I had worked, um, you know, quite a few years in operations. So, you know, I had 13 years of working operations, hundred percent of my time, right. You know, not, not doing management, not doing, uh, you know, other things. And so over that period, you gain a lot of experience and you deal with a lot of problems. You become known for solving those problems, right. Um, you know, on, on goes, uh, I through M anyways, you know, I was part of a, a big operations team that, uh, you know, put into place what, what I would say is almost like a, a standard way of, of operating a mission in terms of, uh, you know, uh, monitoring procedures, contingency procedures, training, rehearsals, and things like that. How, how you manage an operations team to sustain it, um, through its, through its mission life and beyond. And so those things that we put in place, um, with that team. And, you know, I, I, I was a young, young guy at the time. I stood on the, you know, the shoulders of people like Milt, Milt Feniger ah, and yes. Don Novak, John Furillo. And, you know, these, these people were, you know, had been, you know, older than I was and more experienced. And, you know, so, you know, the combination of young, young people with all the energy to, to do the work. Um, and then the experience of the, uh, the, the older people, uh, you know, certainly was, was a key fact. In we had a phrase the, in the air force, the young guys are all prop, no rudder. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's inter interesting now. When I, when I think of uh, mission operations, you know, the, one of the reasons I, I kind of got out of it was it, it takes a toll on you because, you know, there's always problems and, and you're always being called in you know, at, at any time of the night or any time of the year, it seems like, you know, every, every Thanksgiving, you know, or Christmas or a holiday, you know, there, there was a problem that you had to go in, you know, you, you start to wonder, Hey, maybe I should be doing something different. Yes. You know, as, I've, yeah. I've dealt with more than one new year's Eve anomaly. Seriously. Right, how yes. do you know, how do you know to go on new year's Eve? You don't keep a calendar. Right. Right. So Eleanor, and just to answer your question, you know, that my experience, um, in that in that field, you know, I guess other people hear about or known about it, and so they pull people, you know, that have had that experience. And, and at the time, I was not working operations. I was I was actually the deputy project manager at the time for for GOES. You know, so I had now the experience of seeing missions in the design phase, uh, seeing missions at the end phase, you know, um, and also missions that you know at the very end when you're turning them off in the case of Landsat. So that, that gave me um, the ability to, you know, experience to, to serve on a team like this. Did you have a particular focus area? Was it operations or did they actually want you to stretch out beyond what you knew? Um, 
You know, I mean, it's interesting. An anomaly, the people you need for an anomaly kind of depends on what the anomaly is, right? So if, if it's a ground anomaly, you know, that something happened on the ground and you know it, then you're, you really want a lot of people that have knowledge in, in that aspect of the mission. Is it antennas? Is it software? You know, is, is it computer systems, you know, networks, all those types of things. If it's a spacecraft anomaly, you may want some engineering. You know, if it was software problems, then you may want some software engineering. So that, that combination of understanding how the operations work, how procedures should be set up, how uh, teams should operate and think and prepare and, and train in, a, in an operational environment, along with uh, engineering, um, management expertise because of, you know, frankly, a lot of problems are caused or are a result of decisions that were made years ago, right? And procedures that were set in place that, you know, may have had uh, some minor fault in it, but that minor fault in combination with some other fault caused the problem that you had, right? You know, so, you know, the, the team has to, you know, kind of pull all that together uh, and the experience has to be broad, you know, good systems engineers go, go a long way. And so, so my background is, you know, in, 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 in schooling anyways, is, is aerospace engineering. Um, but also my master's is in systems engineering. So, so that kind of made me right for the job, but, but again, I was just one member on it, on that team. And, uh, you know, to help out. So how did this all get set up? We, we, we let up, you know, you got the call. So what, what happened next? So there's typically these types of, these type of investigations, there has to be a chair, you know, somebody who's leading the investigation team and who ultimately will write the report. Uh, in this case, it was Dolly Perkins, who was, um, you know, pretty well known within NASA. Um, you know, she had worked in engineering. She had worked in, um, and the flight projects director at Goddard. And uh, so she had a, had a lot of experience. And so she was the one that was pulling the team members, right. You know, in concert with people from headquarters to identifying who the right people were to, to, to make up the team. So, you know, Do Dolly, you know, literally picked up the phone and said, Hey, you know, we, we could use you for this job. And so once that team is kind of gotten together, you know, there's typically a brief up front. Okay. This is what we think happened. This is what we're looking at. Um, you may have to do a site visit. So in this case, you know, we went to the control center, which was in Denver uh, at the uh, Lockheed Martin facility where a lot of these um, missions are operated at, out of. And so, you know, we went there for, you know, to get a good hands-on understanding and talk to the operations team, talk to the engineers, talk to the management, you know, understand how they were doing their operation and hear, hear their view of what happened, right? You know, they they were the ones that were on the front lines, if you will, when when the anomaly occurred. Right. Okay. So so you get some sort of like in brief as far as how much time you had and what your boundaries were along those lines. Um. You know, in any investigation, you know, you're you're looking at you know in simplest terms, why did this happen, right? You know, so you know what what was the the, we use the word root cause of, of the problem. You know, where, if you went all the way back to something, you know, what was that root cause? But, but typically there's not just one thing that happened, right? You know, if, if you, uh, I'll use the example, if you get in a car accident, right? You know, um, you, you could go out, get in your car, and if you have bald tires on it, it's raining, 
Um, you know, you were sleepy that day, you know, you, you, you didn't see something and, you know, it, so all these things kind of led up to you not seeing something happen. You hit the brakes too hard, the car slides, you know, and, you know, it, all these are all proximate causes that kind of led up to the accident. And the same type of thing is with operations is that, you know, things kind of snowball, right? You know, a little thing happened and it may have happened a long time ago. Uh, and then somebody else does something else. And then there's a, a failure and a hardware and, and on the, or software on the spacecraft. And the combination of all these things led up to a, a failure that nobody ever thought of, Hey, you know, this, this type of thing w- would possibly. Another happen. way I've heard it is uh, described is that like the procedures that we have in place, we think of being solid, but they have holes in them. And if you've got multiple layers of procedures and things, eventually those holes are going to line up. And that's when something falls through. And there you have your your incident. Right, right. So, you know, it could be cultural, you know, it could be, you know, just philosophical things that in combination with, you know, a, a real problem that could have been solved easily um, could manifest itself into something catastrophic, right? Can you give any real world examples of some of those the, that people, you know, our audience may be able to, to relate to? Uh, real world examples. Um, I mean, so you typically think of, of anomalies, you know, big anomalies when you think about, you know, like Challenger and Columbia, you know, uh, you know, the, where in the, in the Challenger incident where, you know, there were decisions that were made um, about launching and people didn't under, understand all the, you know, engineering impacts of uh, of launching in the cold, you know, and, and these O-rings that, uh, you know, would shrink and, and you would get leaks. And by itself, launching in with the Challenger with a, um, in the warm, on a warm day is not a problem, right? Uh, but on a cold day, it's possibly a problem. Right. You know, and then management decisions and culture kind of, you know, led to all these things lining up on a certain day and happening in a disaster that that happened that caused a loss of life. You know, that's that's a a real world example of, you know, a combination of things that that took place, Um, you know, decisions that were made long ago about how to engineer these things and what they could survive. And, you know, that all led up to one point. You know, the holes lined up, as, as Tom said. Typically, uh, airline crashes nowadays are the same kind of thing. Just a whole list of things come up. Very rarely is it one thing. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's never the thing you thought. <laughs> when you're faced with an anomaly, you're sitting online, and I've had this happen, you know, many times. You know, you're like, hey, you know, this, you're, you're thought of, okay, this is what the problem is. Um, typically is not the right solution, right? Or not the right Because your information answer. is limited uh, at that point. And your perspective is limited. Right. So you're, you're thinking about what it is. That's why it's very important to have, you know, good solid procedures in place and that, you know, that the, that the operations team can, can act on and and execute. So, you know, if you say, if this problem happens, you will do these things, right. And regardless of what you think, right. The problem is you will execute this procedure faithfully, um, you know, and, and and that is you know the way missions are saved is because there's a lot of thought that goes into these procedures contingency procedures to save a mission early on you try to think of all the different scenarios it's not 100% but all that thought went into that procedure and 
you should follow it is is the bottom yeah, line. Yeah, we always said it was scary, but the ones working on the spacecraft at launch time are probably going to be the most knowledgeable because as time goes on, knowledge gets diluted and things come together and it's, right. it's like, okay, here's what we believe you need to do. And unless you have a really right. good reason, this is what you should do. And, you know, the, the tricky thing is, is over time, things fail on the spacecraft and and so those procedures should be updated and, you know, and, and rehearsed, you know, and practiced uh, with with the changes. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And, you know, and sometimes it's where people where uh, missions get caught. They don't follow through on that. So how about giving us a, a quick summary of what actually happened on MGS? I think, Eleanor, let's plan on uh, linking the three page summary of the incident and all the recommendations so people can look up for a little more detail if they want to. Yeah, so it it was interesting. Remember, I, I kind of said that um, you know the the problem was set up, you know, six six months earlier, and, and in fact, there's there's portions of it that were set up in the design of the spacecraft. You know, so so early on in in in, in the mission, they designed the spacecraft to handle certain situations and certain thermal conditions, and they built it that way, right? Then you you fast forward almost ten years. You know, Tom mentioned that Mars Global Surveyor was way beyond its its operational plan life. It was ten ten years into the mission, and so you know, te- team members on the operations team change. You know, they get moved in and moved out. You know, people retire and things like that. Um, and expertise gets lost, and uh, you know, and, and things, as I mentioned, fail on the spacecraft, and, and you know, and sometimes operational procedures are are, are not updated. Um, and so, in this case, there was a new person that was on board, a uh, software engineer, and that software engineer needed to update something and misinterpreted some notes from the the more experienced engineer who had just retired. A load went to the spacecraft to change certain parameters, which were normal routine uh, parameters that had to be updated. Um, one of the one of the problems was is that they didn't use the normal procedure for for updating it. They they used a, a different procedure uh, for uh, for updating it. And what ultimately happened was a few bits in the memory uh, got changed that should not have been changed. That load happened six months prior to to the anomaly. And then during certain conditions, you know, in in the mission's life, you know, the the solar ray has to point towards the sun and the high gain antenna uh, needs to point towards the earth, you know, for communications. And during certain times of the year, the, the solar rays and stuff have to, you know, meet different angles. And what happened was the 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 solar array actually uh, ran into a hard stop, right? Which in itself is is not a problem, but it triggered a fault logic. You know that the spacecraft said, "Hey, something's wrong. We better go to a safe mode, stay there, and be stable." But the problem was is that the parameter it was supposed to use for pointing the antenna back at the Earth, you know, was corrupted by this load uh, that happened six months ago, right? So the load actually corrupted portions of the, the solar array where it pointed, and it also corrupted some portions of where the, where the high gain antenna was to point. And so where the high gain antenna pointed was not towards the uh, Earth. <laughs> so, right. And so there was no communication. Meanwhile, there was uh, um, a problem brewing in that the, the, end, the satellite was designed uh, for certain orbits and stuff to handle in certain durations. And 
one of the batteries ended up being pointed towards the sun and, and getting in an overheated situation. And then ultimately, because of that thermal condition, the batteries, you know, started being depleted. Um, and then at some point, the batteries got so depleted that the spacecraft lost power and, and when it, you know, went into a flat spin. So it wasn't controlling itself anymore. All these sequences of events of somebody retiring, making a note, you know, somebody making an upload who was less experienced, didn't follow the procedure, did it six months before a change in the orbit over time, you know, that was natural, you know, caused a condition to happen on the solar array that wasn't a real problem, but the spacecraft thought it was a problem and put the antenna in a certain location that didn't point at the earth. And next thing you know, you got, you got a problem, right? You know, and, and then uh, a situation that was uh, with the batteries was a design issue that was made back before the thing was even launched, you know, was, was a problem, but, you know, in normal operations, it was, was not an issue. So all these things, uh, kind of lined up and set up the conditions for which, you know, this, the spacecraft now is in trouble. And then, of course, being at Mars, you know, the the duration of time in which you can um, actually see the information, I think that, you know, with the speed of light, you're still looking at data that's up to like 40 minutes Right, old, between right? the relay time, so by the time you go there and back, yeah. So it takes, you know, so you're looking at old data and your decisions are, are delayed and so that kind of doesn't help the situation either. So all these things, like I said, you know, wasn't one simple thing that you go, ah, that's what it, that's what it was. All these things contributed um, to, to the fault that caused the demise of the, uh, of the satellite. So there wasn't any one particular thing that put it together, but were there any moments that pulled a bunch of it together, what I'd call an aha moment that, you know, just in the investigation, it was like, oh, wait a minute, that pulls this and this and that. Yeah, you know, you start, you have to piece it kind of together what, what happened, right? You know, once you kind of, you know, you start looking back and the, you know, the aha thing was, was when this parameter got over, overwritten months ago, right? Um, and, and put in incorrect states in the computer because the procedure wasn't, you know, you were like, okay, now we understand how it could happen. The, the interesting thing is, is in this case, since, you know, the satellite was, um, seen one day, right? And then on the next contact, it was barely seen. Then on the next con, it was never seen again, right? You're very limited in, in your data. So you have to really reconstruct, you know, the, the scene, uh, uh, you know, what, what actually took place. And you're never a hundred percent sure exactly what happened because you don't have all the data to reconstruct it on board the spacecraft, right? So you're, you're going off of the little bit of telemetry that you had. Um, and, and for those people who don't understand what telemetry is, telemetry is, is the data that comes from the spacecraft, the, you know, the, the temperatures, the engineering units and things like that. So, so you're working off of that little bit of data and what the operations team did, um, what happened in the past, you know, how you knew the spacecraft would operate, how you knew the, the uh, uh, flight software would work, you know, in a fault condition and kind of put together this story that makes sense. And uh, from that, you know, you can get yourself what you believe is a root cause with a set of proximate causes around it. And then, and then of course, the, the, the more important thing is, is that what do you do about it? Right. You know, you, you've had this problem, you know, so for the future, you don't want to make these same mistakes. Right. So, you know, typically 
uh, review team will come up with a bunch of findings that will uh, be provided to the operations team and to NASA and say, hey, here's what we found. Here's the things that we would change if, you know, we could, um, you know, and maybe want to consider changing these things, uh, not only on this, mi- you know, missions that are there in the control centers, but across NASA, those, those types of things. Yeah, and then actually I brought you into the Pentagon that time to, to talk to the Air Force people about what happened. I was trying to get it even even bigger. Let's cast a wider net. We hope that you enjoyed this interview with Andre Dress. Join Tom Hill and me, Eleanor Rangers, for the conclusion of our interview with systems engineer Andre Dress in our next podcast on Space 3D.